This January, over 750 OA members gathered in Los Angeles for OA's 50th birthday party. Events included keynote speakers, multiple long-timer panels, workshops, a big book boot camp, and even an appearance by Roseanne S. If you'd like CDs or MP3s of any or all of these sessions, go to oa50th.org and then follow the link to the recordings. That's oa50th, oa50th.org. Welcome to the OA Light a Candle Meeting Podcast. Visit our website at www.oalaig.org where you'll find three separate speaker feeds with over 200 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Violet. I'm Violet Compulsible Reader. Hi. What it was like, I grew up in a family where my sister had the weight problem. I had allergies. So, I really did have allergies. My mom cooked really, you know, to try to control my sister's weight during the week and normal things. We didn't have many desserts. However, I did learn to grow up eating cottage cheese with sugar on it, tomatoes with sugar on it, white rice with brown sugar on it. (laughs) <laughs> but she was still controlling everything. But anyway, that's how I learned how to eat those foods. My mother was one of seven children, and we had family dinners on a real regular basis. And at family dinners, everybody brought at least one dessert. Family, I don't know how you, if you have families do it, but basically everybody brought a whole complete meal, and, you know, we just shared it. So I grew up with, we had a lot of family dinners, so I got to have lots of different kinds of desserts. And I still have some favorite ones I can still remember in my mind, like, wow, this is really good, because my mind works a little differently than normal people. And my dad was one of two, so we only we didn't have as many desserts there, but my grandmother had cooked for lumbermen, so we had, she made like at least three different kinds of pies. And then we had the fam- my aunt brought one and my mother brought one, so we had lots of, and I could remember eating so much that different times I'd fall asleep afterwards, I never realized until just a few years ago in program that basically I probably had a sugar fall, fell asleep because of the amount of sugar I was eating. And I also had memories of when we ate, eating until I couldn't eat anymore, and as soon as I got started getting comfortable, I went out and got some more dessert, you know, got the leftovers. So we, so it was just a big part. We learned how to binge eat, basically. I learned how to binge eat because that's when the food was available. When it was there, I ate it. And I ate as much as I wanted and as much as I could until that time. So that's how I kind of grew up. And then I married um, a full-time compulsive overeater. <laughs> I shouldn't qualify him as that, but he was 6'2", and I'm 5'2", and I wanted my half of the food, and I got my half of the food. Okay, And at that part, I started gaining weight and trying different different diets, different this, different that. And went to Weight Watchers, and I was successful at Weight Watchers because at that time I believed the only really thing wrong was I was just had a little bit of weight to lose. Of course, I think I lost I was 170, 180 at that point, and I just figured once I lost my weight, everything would be perfect. The only thing really wrong with my life was the fact I was overweight. So I got through it at that time. I didn't eat the liver so that ages me, but I got through it, and I even went through their maintenance program. And so I wasn't one of the persons that lost their weight and, you know, immediately started gaining the back. Actually maintained it for quite a while. And then life started happening. You know, we moved out to California. started to going to 
Weight Watcher meetings, and then afterwards we'd go out to a Mexican restaurant to eat. <laughs> you know, <laughs> what can I say? And I gradually started gaining my weight back, and then things really started happening, and I had no fallback because all I had was a diet plan. And when things didn't go the way I thought it was going to go, the one thing solution I knew was to eat over different things. And being thin really didn't change my life that much at that point. My husband still didn't desire me. I wasn't, um, I was happy I was thin, but it really didn't solve my life's problems. And I couldn't maintain it without something. So after I got divorced, I dated a guy that was in AA. In fact, when I came up to the church today, I thought, I'm sure this is a church that we went to AA meetings on Saturday night. Pretty positive this is a church. And he would take me to AA meetings. And I had been introduced, let me just get back, I had been introduced while I was still married to OA by a friend. And I came to these meetings, and I thought, I liked the, op- the, you know, the speaker, the leader was interesting, nice, interesting story. And the three-minute pitches, I thought, well, they just needed a little attention. And I was very glad when I didn't have to raise my hand anymore for being a newcomer, you know. And one time somebody called me, and I just about jumped out of my skin, because, you see, I wasn't a compulsive eater. I just liked to eat. You know, it is hard to hear what's being said in these meetings when you have your fingers in your ear going, no, 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 I'm not a compulsive eater. I just like to eat. So as a result, I got to, after I got divorced and and I met this guy that was an AA and we were dating and he would take me to AA meetings. Now in AA meetings, I heard, I heard what the 12 steps were, how the 12 steps work, and how the 12 steps change people's lives. And you know the reason I heard it in those meetings instead of OA? It's because I had my fingers out of my ears. And I, because I wasn't an alcoholic, so there was nothing threatening in those rooms. But in OA, it was very threatening because I wasn't a compulsive eater. I just liked to eat. In fact, I remember one time we had been to a AA meeting on Friday. We went to another one on Saturday. And Sunday we walked into the meeting on Sunday and had no problem going to the third AA meeting that weekend. And when he walked into the room, I realized it was OA. And I could feel my wall being built. It was really weird. Cause, and he said, he realized I was starting to react. So he went outside. He says, do you want to leave? I says, no, I'll, I will stay. But when I was in the room, I could literally see myself building a brick wall between me and everybody else. Because I wasn't a compulsive eater. I just liked to eat. But I could visualize that wall being built. And why would I need to build a wall if I wasn't a compulsive reader? So I still don't go, you know, it's still on my own. I didn't go to meetings. Once in a while, he'd pay for my dinner if I go to a meeting, you know, this way, whatever. And I remember going to a meeting in Culver City, and the, Spencer was at that time leading a meeting, and he said how warm the room was. I looked around, I thought, pretty cold to me, because see, I still had my defenses up. So what had to happen before I came into program was I had to become suicidal. And I was suicidal on a regular basis. It was, it was hard. And I kept telling myself, suicide is a permanent solution to a temporary problem. And I kept having the problem. And I would think, you know, and I heard, I forgot one thing until I heard it, somebody else talk about a meeting. When you're going on the 405 West and you take the, or the 10 West and you take the 405 South, I would sit there and fantasize about 
straightening out that curve, what would happen if I went straight? Would I just hit and go straight into it? Would I hit and flip, or would I go completely over? These aren't real same thoughts. And I would have to drive on the inside lane because I was so afraid of straightening it out in the right-hand lane. And when I was going under underpasses, I would think about going into the cement things. And the only thing that stopped me from doing this was the fact I had a son, and if I killed myself, his dad would raise him. Like, I was tightly wrapped. And, you know, and I just went, I don't know, but I, that was the one thing they did, and I lived in fear of anything happening to me, because, uh, to my son, because if anything happened to my son, I would have no reason to go on living. So in January of 1986, I started talking in January, February, I started talking about needing to go to OA. I need to go to OA meeting. I need to go to OA meeting. And so finally in October, somebody I worked with says, why don't you quit talking about it and do it? And she wasn't in program. She just got tired of hearing it. Because you hear somebody from January, February to October. It's a long time for somebody to say they're going to go to a meeting and not go. So I started actually in October of 86, and I started doing this myself, trying to do it the best I could do. My son had oral surgery and had a whole bunch of teeth removed at one time. He had a heart any teeth in his head. And he was supposed to do certain things, and he wasn't doing it. And I had a big store, a grocery store at that time that since moved. And I went over to the grocery store and got food for him and food for me. One pie for him, one pie for me, one cake for me, one cake for him, one of this, one of that. And I ate it. And I was not. Here's this kid who just had oral surgery. He's really out of it. And here's this mother, crazed on sugar, screaming at him, you're not doing anything I tell you to do. Because, see, you understand, if, if you had done what I thought you should do, my life would have been perfect anyway. I wouldn't have been suicidal. Things would have been going a lot better if you just did what I wanted you to do. So that was November 9th. When I woke up the next day, it was November 10th, and I realized for the first time, I realized what I had done to myself. And I had had enough program at that time to realize what I had been doing all along. And so I said to God, with your help, I never want to do this again. And I've been abstaining ever since then. I've had some weird days. I've had some weird meals. And it's been 22 and a half years. And I don't have to eat that way anymore. I don't have to hurt myself when things are going wrong. I don't have to hurt myself when things are going good. The one thing I skipped over and that I thought that is really important to me is one of the things I did when I came into program in October, because I always, you know, I wasn't one of you. I wasn't one of you. And so when I came back, to program to start really working program not auditing it but I came back to work it I talked committed to myself that I would talk to one person either before or after the meeting and by talking to that one person I was admitting to one person that I connected with them and that I was a compulsive overeater and that was what I did differently when I came back now, once I started staining, I was still, you know, I'm strong-willed. I really think that most of us in here have strong will. If we could have done this by willpower, we would have done it. Because every morning we get up and say, I can, you know, I didn't do it yesterday, but I can do it again today. And you wake up the next day and I say, well, you know, yesterday I didn't last past 9 o'clock, but I know I can do it today. And we prove ourselves wrong, 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 wrong. And yet every morning we get up and say, we're going to do it today. We're going to do it today. I wanted to do it myself, and after about three months of abstaining, 
I thought, I needed to get a sponsor if I'm going to keep this. I was trying to find a sponsor who had what I want. I, well, that's wrong. I tried to find a sponsor who met my qualifications. My qualifications were they had to be about my age or older. They had to have kids. They had to be married or divorced. And basically what I wanted somebody to do is listen to me complain about my ex-husband. I couldn't find that sponsor. You know, I couldn't find that sponsor. So I started thinking, okay, I'm going to pray to God as if God will help me. So I prayed to God to help me find the sponsor he wanted me to have. And I found that sponsor in a meeting I went to. I had talked about uh, the song Lean on Me and how that meant a lot to me and the people can't help you unless you tell you need some help. And this person didn't cross talk but kind of responded in the same manner. And I realized when she did that that she had raised her hand up for being sponsored. So I, called, I talked to her after me and asked her to be my sponsor. She said yes. And she was about my age. She had kids. She was married. She got divorced while we were, she was sponsoring me. And you know what the one thing different was with my qualifications and God's? Is that she took me through the 12 steps. <laughs> it wasn't on my list. And it worked, you know. And I always thought before I came to program that God was, I knew God existed, but I thought he was never there for me. And I realized when I worked the steps that God had always been there for me. I had my back to him saying, no, you don't understand. I can do this myself. I don't need any help. And the difference today is I realize I need help. I need help to get out the door in the morning. I need help to get through my work during the day. And that's the difference. I realize now that I don't have to do things by myself. I have people I can call. I can call my sponsor. I can call friends. And I can pray. Prayer is portable. No matter where you are, you can pray. And even if you don't, somebody said to me the other day, a newcomer said, what if you don't believe in God? I said, the main thing is to realize that you're not God. And God can be anything you want it to be. It can be, I know somebody wanted it was water, people have been trees, nature, whatever. But I have learned that my God is a loving God. I grew up with a lot of God that was real punishing, and I don't have that God anymore. I realized by working program, not by getting rid of my God, but by working program, that God is a loving God. God wants me to succeed. He doesn't want me to fail. So my first sponsor took me through the steps. When I got to the fourth step, it took me a long time to do the fourth step because I did a real searching and fearless, thorough inventory with spaces in between where I didn't do anything. But I got my fourth step done, and I read it. And there were some things when I was writing my fourth step that made me cry. And it, they hurt. They just hurt. And by the way, my first resentment was against the girl. I went to one-room country school. And the first resentment was the other girl in my grade who had better eyebrows than I did and developed breasts sooner than I did. So that was my first resentment. It shows you, you know, I go whack from the beginning. So <laughs> my mind just works differently. So I wrote down my resentments. That was my first one because she had me do it chronological, and that was my first resentment. So I put that down, and I wrote down all my resentments. And it took two readings of two different afternoons to get through all these because I was real girl. I did, I tried one more resentment. One, when I was reading it, one more resentment came up. And I cried again. And basically it was about this teacher I had in college who I wanted to be in the biology honor society. I was just, I don't remember. And I took this two-hour class and I had like a 92% average and got a C in the class. <laughs> so I wasn't very happy. Um, and I held this resentment because I never got, to, because that one two-hour C, I never got into the society. So this year, 
they sent around something, the college I went to, for um, Memorial Garden for her. I was a biology major. And Memorial Garden for, for, for children. And I thought, that's a great idea, but I didn't really want to contribute for this, this lady because I thought, you don't realize, she gave me a C. Mm-hmm. And I didn't get to, and then I thought, you know, if I really have recovery, and if I really want to be kind to myself and let this go, as proof of really letting it go, I need to donate to this. And I ended up donating to it. Not a lot of money, one of my smaller, you know, $25 donation, one of my smaller ones, but at least I donated. And I thought, this ends that resentment. This ends all, everything related to it. It's like gone. And I don't have to hurt myself anymore with it. The thing I realized when I did my inventory and my fifth step was that I had a lot of resentments number one and that you know sometimes you hear people pulling them along beside the wagon mine weren't in my wagon mine I held dear in my heart near and dear to me and so when I started feeling bad what I did was I pulled out a resentment made myself feel worse and then I pulled out another resentment and made myself feel even worse and I basically spiraled myself down to being suicidal by by holding on to these resentments and once I realized that it was a lot easier to let them go because I realized the only person hurting them was me. And by the way, when I first started abstaining, it was three meals a day, nothing in between. And if I wanted sugar, I had it with a meal. Anything I wanted, I just had it with a meal. And after about nine months in program, I hadn't had it for a long time, and I had it with a meal. And I finally realized what was making me suicidal all along was the sugar. The sugar gave me a high followed by severe depression. And when I was in that severe depression, I started pulling out my resentments. So I don't do sugar anymore today. My abstinence is still basically, I believe in keeping it simple because I needed to keep it simple. I knew I was going to have the rest of my life. So I did um, basically three meals a day. Now there's been some times when I'm going from west, east coast to west coast, I've had four, and it would get back to here, and I immediately switch to the three. I have trouble with my blood sugar, and so sometimes, you know, I just do what I need to do and my meals have a beginning middle and an end and that's it so when it got time to do my amends before I actually got I won't go with that story but when it got time to do my amends so I was doing my amends and this and that and I had to write one to myself and that still makes me cry if I read it it's just because it reminds me of what it used to be like and I needed to make amends to my parents because, you know, they did it to me. <laughs> they did it. They did it. They did it. If they had done this, if they had done that, you know, my life would, whatever. And actually, my parents were very loving parents, and they sacrificed a lot for us. But my dad grew up when, you know, you spoil the rod, spoil the child. So I, I was trying to figure out what to do. And a person here in this room, who's been here almost as long as I have, told me what you do is you write a thank you note to your parents. And I went, okay, yeah, 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 and didn't do it. And so later on, some other people gave me some suggestions, and finally this person again said, what you need to do is write a thank you note to your parents. And so this, you know, after like two or three times of hearing this, okay, I wrote a thank you letter to my parents. And I wrote a letter to my parents telling them what they did right. What I remembered at that time that they did right. And my dad wrote back later, and he responded to it, and he said, you know, sometimes I overpunish you. So my dad made his own amends. My mother didn't ever mention the letter, although later on she told me what a great daughter I was. And I thought, hmm, she doesn't remember everything. <laughs> I remember sales in some respects. 
because I was still strong-willed even when I was a teenager. Working the steps, people get so afraid of working the fourth step, and it isn't any different than any of those steps. The fourth step is going to be one of the most freeing steps you do. And this last year, and I've done several small inventories, small inventories, small inventories, but every once in a while I'd have the problem when I was driving down the road, and memories of what I did as a teenager, sexually, and older, would come back to haunt me. And you have to realize, I was a teenager decades ago, over a quarter of a century ago, and all these decades and all this stuff. In fact, my son says, it was so long ago, it's not relevant today. Um, <laughs> but I would have these memories come up, and it would hurt me. And I, and I, so I finally told my sponsor about it. She says, you know what? Did you ever do a sexual inventory? I went, no. And she says, I think you need to do one. I said, you don't understand, we're all willing participants. And she says, no, I think you need to do one. And I I wanted to do a sexual inventory like I wanted to shoot myself in the foot. However, I've been in program long enough to know that when I need to do something, if I don't do it, the alternative is to go out and start eating again. And I knew when I came in here I wanted to be a long-timer. I knew I wanted to be a long-timer. I wanted what the long-timers had. So do a sexual inventory go back out and eat. I did my sexual inventory. And all the time I'm doing I'm going, God, I don't want to read this to my sponsor. And I kept writing it anyway. I kept writing it and writing it and writing it. When I was through, I go, God, I don't want to read this to my sponsor. I made an appointment with her. I'm going driving down there. I go, God, I don't want to read this to my sponsor. And when I got down there, I went, God, I don't want to read it to my sponsor. And I sat there and read it. And I went through my deodorant. <laughs> I was a little nervous, and um, and her hair didn't curl. She's got really straight hair, and it didn't curl. And she didn't fall over her chair, and she still liked me. One of the things I thought before I got to program is if you really knew what it was like, you wouldn't like me. And I found in program that when I am honest about myself and honest about what I'm going through and honest about my challenges and honest about how I respond to my challenges, that people like me. You know, people like me just as I am. I heard when I was first in program, and this really helped a lot. They talked about one third of the room is going to like you no matter what you do. This third, no matter what you do, this third is going to like you. Now, the middle third, they're going to like you sometimes and not like you other times. You know, just kind of like wishy-washy. And the last third is not going to like you no matter what you do. So the thing is to stick with the people who like you. Don't keep trying to impress somebody and convince people to like you when they're, no matter what you're going to do, it's not going to work. And that really helped a lot because I realized it wasn't me. You know, I was just Violet. And for better or for worse, you know, and I do the seven-step prayer and I ask God to accept me, you know, as I am, the good and the bad. And if God can accept me good and bad, then other people can too. And if they don't want to, then that's their problem. You know, I've got other people to hang around with, other people that like me. And that helped me a lot. One of the things you hear in program is page 449, the old old page number, not the new page number, but acceptance is the answer to all my problems. Actually, my answer is on the next page. My answer on the next page is if I don't know how to live my life, I don't know how to live your life. And this is really important to me because in my family, my mother's real big how you should do this and you should do that and you should, 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 should. And I don't should myself anymore. 
if I do something I don't like the results, I say, well, you know, I don't really like the results of this action, and what can I do differently next time? And I forgot where I was going with that. Oh, with the not trying to tell people, other people how to live their lives. Now, the latest example of that was I took a family vacation with my son and his wife and two of their children. Uh, the oldest son was sick, and so he stayed with his mom, and we went on a family trip. And we cranked this whole family trip so he could be back for his dad's mother's, his grandmother's, 90th birthday party. So we planned the whole trip so he was back in time. And we were back in time. And I said to him after a while, aren't you going to your grandma's birthday party? He says, no, we see her a lot. We'll see her some other time. Now, this is a boy, a man, who his dad is an only child. He's his dad's only child. And his three grandchildren are only three great-grandchildren. And he didn't see fit to go to this party that we had pranked, that I had pranked around so they could go. I even told him, seeing their car wasn't going that well, they could tow my car up there and I'd just stay home. I had no problem with staying home while they went to this party because it was an important family occasion. And he didn't want to go and he wasn't going to go. And I sat there and said nothing. I can't begin to tell you how disappointed I was in my son. Does it mean I don't love him? No, I love him. I was just disappointed. I don't think he's disappointed me more in my whole life than he did then. Mm-hmm. And I said nothing. He has to learn it sometimes to face the consequences of his actions. And I'm sure there's going to be consequences to this action. And it's not my, he's 34, it's not my issue, it's his issue with his dad and his grandma. And I couldn't have done that without program because I would have been in there meddling, telling him what he should be doing. And I really didn't, I really still have problems with the fact I didn't say anything. But I have to trust that not meddling in his life was the best thing I could do. The other time I had trouble with my son's path in life was when one week I found out this college he was going to was demanding, not asking that he not come back again next year. And then a week later, he came up to see me, and he says, Mom, how old are you? And I said, old enough to be your mother. And he says, well, you're old enough to be a grandmother, too. And if you know some story, I didn't say anything about him getting married. And I really had a hard time with this. I cried about it a lot. I had to work with my sponsor on it. She told me that he's on his own path. And I had to stop and think, what is more important, being a part of my son's life as it is, or having him try to get him to do what I think he should do. And I decided it was more important to accept him as he was, and accept everything as it was, and and to do just accept him as he was. And as a result of that decision, I am a part of my son's life, and, and I love that grandson. My oldest grandson is 14 now, and he, he is good-looking just like his grandma, and I would tell my grandkids, and you have to realize they all have brown hair and color. They tan, I don't. And then when he got divorced, he did actually end up marrying her and got divorced, and I didn't kept out of that. And when he got he found his next girlfriend, they actually had two kids this time before they got married. And I just kept accepting as it was, accepting as it was. Now, my daughter-in-law, well, she wasn't a daughter-in-law. This girlfriend at that time, I was having kind of a hard time with her. Number one, I didn't think she stood up to my son enough, which is, like, really strange for the mother, boy's mother to think. But I didn't think she stood up to him enough. I didn't, you know, and so there were, but I just kept acting loving to her. 
You know, Peter S. tells us, what would a loving person do? And I get farther with what would a loving person do than what would Violet do. Violet, you know, Violet's a little whack out there. So I just kept acting loving to her. I kept acting loving to her. And finally she got comfortable enough with me, she stood up to my son once. I went, yes! You know, I was just like, okay, she's going to be okay because she can stand up to her and say no because he really does need somebody to stand up and say no once in a while. And she supports him in a lot of things, but there's also, you know, she does have her little boundaries. And as a result of being what would a loving person do and accepting her as she was in this situation as she was, I have a daughter-in-law who loves me. I have a daughter-in-law who brags about me to her friends. And this is really... I you know I, what I came in here was just to not be suicidal, and I've gotten so much more out of this program by working the twelve steps than I ever thought. My family, you know, is really important to me, and I wouldn't have had that family if I had insisted on them doing it Violet's way. The other thing that's given me a lot of relief in this program is the freedom from bondage prayer, and that is where you. If you're having trouble with someone, you pray for their health, happiness, prosperity, abundance, and, you know, things like that. And I do it even when I'm driving. You know, some idiot cuts me off in the road, and I'm sitting there sputtering, sputtering, sputtering. About One time I was doing that, there were so many crazy people out in the road, and I was sputtering about everybody else was doing it, and I ran a red light. <laughs> and somebody honked at me, okay, okay, God, I got it. Just concentrate on Violet. Just Violet, you know, let everybody else do what. But still, you know, people cut you off and irritate you. So I pray for their health, happiness, prosperity, abundance, and better driving habits. And since I've done that, my driving habits have improved. <laughs> I know nobody else's, but mine have improved. And I remember I went to this one job, and this man who was new to the firm started walking down the hallway. He was probably 25 feet away from me, and I started to react to this man before he opened his mouth. There was something about his bearing or his face or whatever that reminded me of somebody I had trouble with in the past. And I couldn't be nice to this guy. I was, and I had, at that time, I probably had eight years in program. And I was, and I was having a real hard time being friendly and you know, even civil with this guy. And so I said to this, the guy that took me to the A means, I said, what do you do when you're doing these prayers and you're doing them on a regular basis and it's still not helping. He says, well, then what you do is you visualize the person. You visualize them happy, healthy, and prosperous. And, you know, and I did that and it worked. I actually had to do the visualization before it worked for this person. And when he left the firm, I was one of the people he made sure that he said goodbye to. You know, and, and I had another one when I was going back to the firm that I had left. And I was going back as a lower level person. And one of the people I had trouble with was now a partner. And I was going in at a low level. And I just, and I, and first I said, I can't do this. I accepted the job and I called him up and said, no, I can't do this. And then I got to the point where I realized I was going to have to declare bankruptcy if I didn't get a job. So I called him back up and said, if the job's still open, I'll take it. And I started working this prayer, praying for health, happiness, prosperity, abundance. And when she had her baby shower, I was one of the two or three people from the firm she invited to the baby shower. Now, with the partner I work with, I'm a CPA, tax even. So I work with a partner that's very difficult to work with, and that's putting it mildly for the tape. And what I would do sometimes, I would sit there and visualize the office, and I'd pray for love, patience, tolerance, kindness to fill this room. I'd go to the next room and pray for love, patience, tolerance, kindness to fill that room. And I'd go through the whole office praying for love, patience, kindness, tolerance to do all these rooms. 
And then I'd go through the hallway and I'd say, God, you know, to fill the hallways with love, patience, tolerance, kindness, compassion, and have it like be a gossamer that when we walk through it, it stays with us as we leave the building. And that actually changed the mood of the whole office. In fact, one time, this one woman I was working next to, and I know that she's next to the room, she said to me, you need to do this prayer, because it's getting kind of bad. I said, well, you could do this prayer. And she says, no, it works better when you do it. <laughs> and so here was somebody that's not in program, probably doesn't even really believe in the 12 steps, but she could see the result of when I do the prayers for the office. And I've had people tell me that word in program, you know, I told them, this is a good thing to do. You can have trouble with somebody. And she says, no, I don't like them, so I'm not going to pray for them. I said, you don't understand. And then when I first started doing it, I had so many people I didn't like that I added people I did like. You know, if I had people, five people I was praying for, I had five people I did like because I thought, why should I just pray for this for people I don't like? And so I prayed for the people I did like too. And what this prayer really does is help me stop reacting to these people. That's what really happens in the prayer. Do they get this prosperity abundance? I don't know. That's out of my realm. It's not my business. But what really happens when I say that prayer is I quit reacting to the people. I get some calmness and serenity in my life. And that's the real benefit of doing the freedom from bondage prayer is the person doing the prayer quits reacting. It's not that the other people all of a sudden are really great. We had this one woman in our office that was just literally, really almost insane. She was really wacky. And so I'll go in the bathroom one more time, not remembering. <laughs> anyway, and when I was in there, I prayed for God for health, happiness, prosperity, abundance. And may she find a, may she have a job, not fine, but may she have a job where she's well-liked, respected, and well-paid. Because I prayed good things for her. I didn't pray that she find another job. I didn't pray that she leave. I thought the whole thing is to pray for good things, no matter what you feel. And sometimes I pray for my part, the partner I work for is God give him everything he deserved. Okay, the short version. God give him everything he deserved. And because I can't pray for anything better than that, that's the best I can do. Best, best. I really believe in small changes that we don't have to do everything overnight. We don't have to learn this overnight. We don't have to remember it overnight. It's a lifelong process. So I don't have to be perfect overnight, and I don't have to. In fact, one time I told somebody, I wanted to just be like Mrs. OA and be a floating, like a foot off the ground and just be so spiritual. And this one woman came up and says, you know, if you're like that, nobody can relate to you. And it's true. People relate to us because we tell them, what's actually happening in our life, what we actually did, what we're actually going through, and people learn from that. One time I was making so many mistakes myself, so many I couldn't stand it. I said, God, I just want to learn from someone else's mistake for a while. Can I quit making them myself? And so when I went out to the car that night and I was getting out and going into my OA meeting, the car started ding, 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 and I'm going like, What's the problem? I got my key right here in my hands. And then I remembered my Aunt Ruby telling when my dad was dying in the hospital, which I have stayed through, that she one time got out of the car and her had the keys and it was dinging. She couldn't figure it was dinging for us, so she went up. And when she went back, her battery was dead because she left the lights on. So whenever that, so I went, thank you, God. You know, okay, finally, I learned something from somebody else's lesson. I didn't have to learn it myself. And I went, thank you, God. And now when it happens, I go, thank you, Aunt Ruby. But it really is thank you, God. Because I don't have to make all my mistakes. If I can listen to what other people go through in the meetings and how they resolve things, I don't have to make so many same mistakes. The three-minute pitches in a meeting are as important as the speaker. I really, truly believe it. 
The other thing I would like to say, um, and make sure I say it before I run out of time, is that we've all been on diets. You know, we've all been on diets. We try this, we try that. My sister had um, the surgery with the in, in stomach, intestines, whatever, and she actually got to where she weighed, weighed more than that before her surgery, and she had all these physical problems related to it, and she had some weird symptoms that I think if she hadn't had the surgery, she wouldn't have. So that kind of surgery really doesn't... We have a living problem. The food is a symptom of the living problem. It isn't the problem. I have a wacky head. My wacky head tells me food will solve everything. And my program has taught me, and by listening in meetings, I have learned that food doesn't solve anything. If you eat the food, you now have two problems. The one you started out with and the fact you're back eating again. The fastest way through any problem is to abstain through it because at some point you're going to feel so uncomfortable you have to take some actions. And when you go to a diet program, they tell you what you should do. What you should do, what you should do. You should eat this, you should do that, you should do this, and you should do that. Now, if you go to an OA meeting, basically, we want you all to succeed. We want everybody in this room to find out, to find the serenity such as it is at that moment that we have in our life. And we give you our experience, strength, and hope. When I was talking to my mom recently, I was telling her something I had done. She says, thank you for your suggestion. I says, Mom, it wasn't a suggestion. I'm telling you what I did. A lot of people make suggestions. In this program, we tell you what works. The 12 steps are suggested. They're suggested the same way as you stop at a red light. You know, it's, you have, this 12 steps are there. You don't have to do it. And sometimes, you know, in this end of me, they say, it works when you work it. And I gotta tell you, whether you are working this program or whether I am working this program or not, this program works. It's like my TV. My TV works. Do I have it turned on all the time? No. But the program works. There's been countless millions of people who have recovered using the 12 steps. The 12 steps work whether I work it or not. The 12 steps is a living program. In fact, when I was reading what to do in the morning, I found an answer that I had been looking for all my life, is how to know what to do. Because so many times you don't know if you turn right or turn left. I didn't even know there was all these uh, 178 degrees between right and left. It was always right or left. That's just the way I thought. And it tells you in what to do in the morning that if you don't know, if you come up with a question, you don't know what to do, you ask God for direction. And God will give you the direction. And when I read that, I thought, my God, I have been looking for this answer all my life. How do I know whether I turn right or turn left? How do I know if I do this or do that? I had one sponsor that believed that no actions we took were wrong. They all had different consequences. And as long as we learn from our consequences, then we have, it wasn't a wrong decision. My personal belief is, you know, sometimes people are all the time, I don't know about you, but when I was going to a therapist one time, she says, why do people keep telling you what to do? And I went, I don't know, because I'm not listening anyway. You know, why would they keep telling me what to do? If you don't know what to do, this is my opinion now, and you do what somebody else tells you you should do, it can never have a good result. If it works out the way they said it would, you would think, I don't know what's good for me. And if it doesn't work out the thing way they think it should, then you would say, gee, I wonder what would have done, what would happen if I'd done what I wanted to do. 
Now, if you do what you, you know, and, and this is also with prayer. This isn't just self-will, but this is also with prayer. If you pray for God's guidance and you do this, and you, you do what you think is right, you have good results. Because if it works out the way you think it's going to work out, you prove that you are starting to intuitively know what's good for you. And if it doesn't work out the way you think it's going to, you can say, what can I do differently next time? And that has helped me so much. Thank you for listening.